Hey there, SLP. You are listening to this podcast, so I know that you love to listen to podcasts. And if that is the case, then I know that you are going to love my secret private podcast, Secondary Secrets for SLPs. It's six short episodes that will have you walking away feeling refreshed and inspired and ready to take on those challenging secondary speech students. So if you work with grades four through 12 and are in a planning rut or wanting some fresh new ideas to keep your students motivated, make sure you head to speechtimefun.com slash secondary secrets. You are not going to find this podcast in your iTunes podcast search browser. You can only get access by going to that link. So head to it now. It is six short episodes that you can listen to it in under an hour, like totally Netflix binge-worthy. I made this just for you, and I know you are going to love it. SLPs have been telling me already that it has changed their way for working with their older speech students. So head on over, again, to speechtimefund.com slash secondarysecrets, or use the link in the show notes, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Now let's head on to this week's episode of SLP Coffee Talk. You are listening to SLP Coffee Talk. I am your host, Hallie Sherman, and I am a licensed speech-language pathologist who is in the trenches working full-time in a public school in New York. I am the author of the blog and Teachers Pay Teachers store, Speech Time Fun, where I love helping other SLPs conquer the overwhelm and get back hours spent on prepping activities. I am here to help you be the best SLP you can be and have fun while doing it. Just like your morning cup of coffee, this podcast is just what you need to start the day or week. Let's jump into today's Coffee Talk. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. Today, I have another guest with me. Yes, yes, I know you guys are loving my guest episodes, so I had to bring another guest on board. And today, not only do I have a certified SLP, but I also have a board-certified behavior analysis. Rose Griffin, welcome to the show, and I'm so excited to have you talking all about getting students that are nonverbal communicating. You have such a thorough background on working with professionals and parents and students with autism, and you've started ABA Speech and so much. Tell us more about you, and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, so I am a speech therapist. I've almost been a speech therapist for almost 20 years now. So I'm feeling very seasoned. And I can say that now that I've been doing it almost 20 years. And, you know, I've always been really passionate in my student teaching experience. I worked with somebody who had a lot of students with pretty severe autism on her caseload in a public school setting. And I just really loved working with students who were nonverbal, who were emerging communicators. And through that passion, I decided to take courses and do my all the things you have to do to become a board certified behavior analyst. And I did that almost 10 years ago now. So it's, it's such an exciting thing to have both certifications. There's less than 450 people worldwide that have it. And it really allows me to help my students in such a very specific way and allows me to have a platform to really help other professionals feel more comfortable when they're working with students who potentially have problem behavior, students who are potentially not responding to the strategies that we really learn in graduate school. So yeah, I'm excited about being duly certified. 
Wow, I didn't realize that there were so few duly certified. That's so interesting. That's so fascinating. What is one aha moment you had when you were going through your coursework that you said, wow, I'm so grateful that I had this nugget of information? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know what it was for me is thinking about where to start with early learners. So knowing that if a student does not have a way to communicate that what they really want to do is really want to be able to tell us things that they want to do. So finding out what a student really loves and enjoys, this whole idea of starting with in the behavioral field, we call it manding, but we would call it requesting as speech therapists. And we obviously work on that when we're working in early intervention or with anybody who is more of an emerging communicator, but it was just such an aha moment for me to kind of conceptualize how do I plan a session for students who are really struggling to communicate? I know that I felt like, and I shared with my email list the other day, getting an outpatient that was three years old and just feeling like sweaty and nervous because I knew that it was going to be a struggle to keep that learner engaged. And I was nervous that if he engaged in problem behavior or didn't like the things that I had planned, I felt like I didn't have a framework into which to work on. I didn't know how to plan the session. I was trying things, but I was just feeling kind of defeated because I felt like my students weren't making progress. And so when I learned about that concept of let's find out what a student really loves and enjoys and let's help them request those things first as kind of a gateway to other ways to communicate, that was really an aha moment for me. And it really has helped me help my students find their voice and start communicating. Wow. That's so amazing. That's interesting that you really, something that you already knew, just, you just heightened that awareness and uh, belief and brought it to life. How would you define someone as an early communicator or or someone who's saying, okay, is this my student or not? How would you define... Well, I think somebody who is really not communicating on their own, Mm -hmm. somebody who is potentially only communicating by using like problem behavior Mm -hmm. or students who have a lot of behavioral barriers, oftentimes, unfortunately, those things often go hand in hand. So we would see students who, for whatever reason, haven't learned how to communicate. And I, Hallie, before my company, ABA Speech, got really kind of labor intensive, I always worked in a public school and in a private ABA type school, or some states call it a non-public school. Mm -hmm. And so it's really sad, those students I would see, and they would be eight, nine, 10, and they would have no way to communicate and were really difficult, didn't have a whole lot of things that they like to engage with and engage in a lot of problem behavior because unfortunately that's the way that they were getting their needs met and getting access to things that they wanted. So working in that setting really made me realize that, you know, I had to really systematically plan for the students in order to help them find a way to communicate. So if you have students who are only communicating when it's prompted, if you have students who are engaging in problem behavior, if you have students and you're unsure how to keep them engaged in therapy, that would be somebody who would be an emerging communicator to me. Wow, that's a great way to describe it. And what would you say to someone, where should someone start 
when working with these, this population? Yeah, absolutely. So the very first thing I always urge people to think about is our assessments. As speech language pathologists, we know that, especially if you're working in the private sector, you might have to give a standardized assessment. And I know that you've probably given standardized assessments to students and they get less than a 55 as a standard mm-hmm. score. And then you think to yourself, well, I'm not sure what this, what this assessment really tells me. Like, does this really drive my intervention. And so I always urge speech therapists to think about the functional communication profile, which is more of an open-ended assessment, and it looks at various types of language. And if you don't have access to that, just thinking about, does the student have a way to request? And requesting is not the end-all, be-all. That's not what we want our students to only be able to do. But I know, I know you love coffee, and I love coffee too. And if I couldn't tell somebody that I wanted coffee in the morning, if I couldn't tell somebody I wanted Starbucks, I would feel very irritated. And so I get really sad when I see students who are older learners and they can't tell me what they want. They can't Mm -hmm. express it. And so that's really a stepping stone is that assessment piece. And if you have students who are not able to request on their own, I would urge you to even just do an informal assessment and analyze, can the student request if I give them maybe a gestural prompt on their AAC device, or if I do a sign and they do a sign after me, how can the student request? And if they're not able to, that really absolutely needs to be something that the student gets direct instruction on. Because that's going to open up their world, and that's going to allow them to realize that their communication is powerful. I've worked with so many students, and I'll never forget the first time a student started requesting that he wanted to, like he had this little straw that he liked to play with, that he wanted to play with the straw, that he wanted to listen to music, that he wanted to look at the mirror, like all these things that were very specific to his interests. And I'll never forget him being able for the first time at nine years old to be able to tell somebody what he wanted. And that those stories, and I have so many that I can mm-hmm. keep going, but they're powerful to me. They're powerful to that student for lifelong learning to the parents. That opens up the world for that student. That opens up the world for that family. And so I would say really, really think about even doing an informal assessment on requesting. And if a student can't request, that really needs to be something that you include on your IEP. Wow. And what tips or advice will you give like what the parent like questionnaire or survey or interview, whatever you wanted to call it, what tips and advice to what probing kind of questions would you ask to get that information from them on how are they getting their child to request and things like that. Right. Yeah. And you know, you might just talk to the parent about, you know, how is the student communicating at home? I do a lot of different parent consults with a lot of parents that live in other countries who don't really have access, number one, to speech therapists and number two, to speech therapists that really don't always have exposure to working with students with mm-hmm. severe autism. And so a lot of the times I just talk to them and say like, you know, how does your child, like I just did one yesterday and talked to somebody who has a child who's been newly diagnosed at age two and said, you know, how does your child let you know that they want something? You know, I have three kids of my own and they're all upstairs now in my (laughs) my little closet here where I do my podcast. But, you know, there's a lot of requesting that goes on at my house. And so typically when somebody's little or an emerging communicator, they may like just go get it, right? If they're older. (laughs) Um, And then that might become a problem, right? If it's something that maybe is unhealthy or is dangerous or something like that. Or, you know, they might be guiding you to the items. Some of those things that we think about with early intervention 
depression, we might be seeing those different types of things. So definitely, and I think that's what's harder about being a school-based therapist is making sure you have that ongoing communication piece. And I always try to, it, it, it almost kills me at the beginning of the school year. I do work in a school three days a week as a treating speech therapist, but I do send an email to every single parent that I have on my caseload. And I just say, hey, my name is Rose. Most of the kids I've had before because I work in a very small district, but I want to touch base with them because I want them to know this is a place where we can communicate. There can be ongoing communication. Most parents just write back and say, hey, thanks so much for the email. I'm so glad we'll be working together. But letting parents know that you're here to support them because it's hard. It's got to be really hard to have a student with a disability. So, so true. So true. And it's so important. I love all these tips for getting a true great assessment and information because those standardized tests don't tell us anything for this population. It tells you that, yes, okay, they qualify. Right. Like, duh. Right. <laughs> right? Exactly. Now what do we do? How do we plan the session? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you always talk about having like a preference assessment. Will you tell a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So one of the students that I show in some of the videos that if you've ever seen my trainings, I've done a lot of trainings for speechpathology.com and SLP Summit, things like that. I have my own courses, but one of the students that I had worked with for so long, he came to the ABA center that I worked at and my colleague had done an outside evaluation for him, went to his school district and he really was engaging in so much problem behavior and didn't have any way to communicate. And then I started seeing him as his speech therapist at the outside clinic. That was his school. That was his least restrictive environment. And I remember sitting across from him for, you know, 30 minutes at a time, breaking up his session times. And he was not interested in the iPad, which was just like, that stopped me in my tracks because I really didn't know how to function if a student didn't like the iPad. I mean, when we first started practicing, when I first started practicing, I'm older than you, you know, we didn't have the iPad. No, I didn't either. We didn't have the iPad, but now that we have the iPad, it's like, Oh, you know, most kids will like something on the iPad, but this student didn't care about the iPad. He didn't want anything to do with anything in my therapy room. And I tried everything. And this student really made me think outside of the box. And I think made me become such a better speech therapist because I really had to think about what did this student love and enjoy. It wasn't going to be the traditional things that other students, you know, 99% of your caseload may really love the snowball fight, right? I have some pediatric clients and we do like themed activities and snowballs and Santa and all these fun things. This kid and most of the kids I work with are not having it. They don't care about those things. And so I had to really immerse myself in trying to find out what he loved and enjoyed. And so something I urge speech therapists to use as a tool called a preference assessment. And so a preference assessment, and the one that I'm going to share with you is actually created by an OT who's also a BCBA. And she allows me to put that on my blog. And, you know, it is just such a great way to, it gives you all these different ideas on potential reinforcers or things that a student may potentially like. Now, some of the things on there you're not going to have, but some of the things on there you might, and it may just give you an idea of like, oh, I think I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this item. or I'm going to try this activity. And then you can note it. And I think what's so important about a preference assessment is it's not something that we send home with the parents. We can, but 
well, our students act different. I know my own children act different at school versus at home. So I want to see how is the student engaging with the item? Do they like the item? Do they love the item? And what that's going to help us do, that's going to help us know, number one, we can embed these things they love into the session. So the mm-hmm. session is fun and it's functional. But number two, we can use these for therapy targets. We could use it to work on requesting. We could use that if it's a preferred item. We could take pictures of that preferred item and we could work on labeling targets because I don't know about you, but I know labeling bathroom or spoon is functional, but if I've never labeled anything before, let me tell you, I'm not going to want to talk about that. I'm going to want to label like bubble guppies. or yeah, my- That's not motivating. Like, great, great bathroom. I don't have to go right now. It's not helping yeah. me. Like- <laughs> yeah. so we have to start with what students really enjoy. And so that preference assessment, which we're going to include in the show notes for everybody, really is something that you should print off and just give it a look because it could help you. And I've even done this when if I have a student and like we've gone through a bad streak where maybe they're having some problem behavior at the start of speech therapy and I'm kind of analyzing like, why? why is this happening? And I feel like, oh, maybe, uh, you know, I need to build rapport with the student again. This happens, you know, Mm -hmm. with students, they might be bored with what we're doing. And so sometimes I'll pull out that preference assessment again, if I really have tricky students, and I'll say, you know what, we're just going to do that this week. We're just going to go through and see what things you might like again, because that's the thing with motivation. Like you said, we need to either ask our students or in our head, we need to analyze and say, what are you into today? Because yesterday you liked the iPad doesn't mean you're going to like it today. Maybe before speech you were on the iPad for too long. Okay, that Mm -hmm. happens, right, sometimes. And maybe you're going to be into something different. So we need to present different things that our student may like. So true. And that doesn't make us a bad speech therapist. We have to just be flexible and we have to not take things personally and... So, so true. So true. I love that. They're not, you know, just because you're motivated by it doesn't mean they were going to be motivated by it. And I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that in the like show notes. It's going to be so, so helpful. Okay. So we, ha- we now have their preferences. We have a great assessment. Now, what do we do? What are your best, what are some tips, your favorite tools? What recommendations do you have Absolutely. for my audience? Now to like plan our session, I think the (laughs) next thing is to think about what are some early learner skills. This is the other part of becoming a BCBA that at least for me really helped me kind of solidify how to plan a therapy session to keep students engaged, to feel like things are fun and functional. That's kind of what my tagline has been lately. But thinking about can the student match identical pictures? That's a really great early learner skill. I kind of lump these things all together. I, in a school setting, work with older students. But I still consider those some of those students early learners and the fact that they're still working on some of these early skills. And so matching for a young student has a lot of great implications for learning other skills. For students that are older, if you're listening and you work with older students, matching has so many different implications when you're working on vocational training. So going to a store, one of the students, they would have to go to Bed Bath & Beyond and there would be like all this items that needed to be put back. And so they'd have to pick an item and they have to find out where it goes and match it. And, you know, the speech therapist in me and the BCA thinks like, oh my gosh, this is great. When I see this student, I'm going to work on the same type of matching activities because even though that may seem so simplistic to us, that's going to be a really functional skill for that student. So thinking about skills like that matching, can the student imitate 
So that means can the student even do gross motor imitation? So if you clap and the student claps and you jump and the student jumps and, you know, like I would use like go noodle for that mm-hmm. because that's usually embedded in a classroom activity. And I would be like, oh my gosh, that's so great. Because for students with autism, we always have to plan for generalization. So let's say I'm working on imitation and maybe a one-on-one session or a small group session with the student. And then we go to the classroom and I bring him back to speech or, you know, his area in the class. And then they're doing go noodle. Well, that's great because that's a way to still work on that imitation skill. You know, when cuckoo kangaroo is doing their little (laughs) popsicle or whatever, and we're all doing a dance together, we're really imitating. And so that's really important too. And then if your student is verbalizing or there's any type of vocal language, I think that's so important to think about too. I know that every parent wants to hear their student's voice. And I've been in meetings where I've been really surprised where I've been, this is really long time ago, but I had a meeting once with a student who was in high school and we were not working on verbal imitation at all. And that was not a goal that we had set at all because the student used a device and the parent said, you know, we really want you to work on verbal imitation. And I felt really like, you know, like I just trying something else on my plate. What do you mean? Like I just felt really blindsided. And I felt like, Oh, I mean, now what I try to do is obviously have ongoing communication with parents. Like I said, send that email at the beginning of the year because I want to know those things prior to, you know, maybe, I don't know, I'd have to use my assessment, my clinical judgment, see if that would be something functional for us to work on. But those are all important things because if a student can verbalize, I mean, I have a student, I went to ASHA for the first time when I was in Los Angeles and I did a poster presentation to kind of ease into presenting at ASHA, which is overwhelming, but I did it all about this student who I worked with and he lived in another country for 10 years of his life. And when I met him, he was at middle school age and he had no way to communicate. What was great about this student is he didn't engage in a lot of problem behavior. She's like a very happy kid, had autism, and we were able to really like collaborate. We did the preference assessment. We started working on requesting and verbal imitation. And what was so fascinating about this student actually is that when he was starting to talk, he could say a lot of sounds. Like he could say more advanced sounds and he does verbally communicate now. And it's been amazing to see that kind of growth. And even though he was in middle school when I met him, I still started with this framework and have seen him increase his communication skills, which has just been really, really exciting. Wow. So, so interesting. So it's really important to think about just because not look at, at the age of the student, but looking at the functional level of the student and do those types of goals and activities with them. So matching basic right. vocalizations, imitating yeah, things like you that. You always want to tie it into, obviously, as a related service, if you're working in a public school, we have to think about how is it relevant to their academic curriculum and how are you supporting that? And so a lot of my students who are older go to a vocational type program for part of their day. And I've had really great experiences going out to the vocational program. I've been doing this for a while, so I know exactly mm-hmm. kind of the placements they go to. And so then I can embed that type of work into the speech therapy session. So I feel like I'm pre-teaching. Mm-hmm. 
I'm <laughs> reinforcing. And so that way I'm tying it in and I'm making it something that's cohesive to the curriculum because that's the other thing. We need to make sure that, you know, collaboration is the other piece I want to make sure that I get in here is that, you know, I feel like my most important job as a public school therapist when I was working in a non-public placement is to make sure that I have my goals that I'm working on in speech therapy, but that I'm also reinforcing, I'm encouraging, I'm training and modeling other team members, which that could be parents by, you know, some of my parents, I send a video home once a month on the student's iPad, right? We make it really easy. It's just right there on the iPad. Teachers, I've done like trainings for paraprofessionals and, you know, and I know that not everybody's going to be open to that. You might be working with somebody who's like, I'm not doing it. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years and I don't care what you have to say. (laughs) Or, you know, like when they're in speech, like it's my time to relax. And I totally get that. But you need to just try to build rapport with people who are going to be spending a lot of time with your student. Because I know that after doing this for 20 years and working with students with more complex needs, that I'm just one tiny piece of a bigger puzzle. That if we're not all on the same page, if, if I can't, train the the one-on-one staff to work on and support the communication targets. Now, they may not be working on every target, but if we could just, let's say we have three goals and they're helping to support one. You know, if the teacher can embed something and maybe she's not even taking data on it, maybe you're the only one taking data, right? So we don't want to overwhelm anybody. Every single work situation is going to be different. But I really feel like my job as a speech therapist, my biggest job is to have ongoing communication with the team so that I can be a cheerleader when students are working on communication outside of therapy time, right? So we have to reinforce people and catch them being good. Like when people tell me stories about, oh, you'll never guess what so-and-so said the other day on his own. I'm always like, wow, I can't believe it. And I mean, I'm just an excited person about this kind of stuff. I don't have to fake it. But, you know, we have to reinforce that because if we don't- Please telling us. Please tell us. Keep telling us. Yes, exactly. We have to reinforce people because we're all in this together. And, you know, when you're doing a progress report and let's say your student's working on labeling or requesting, putting those specific targets in the progress report is really going to be helpful because we can help generalize those skills to home. Oftentimes, and I don't know in your area, but a lot of times students with more complex needs oftentimes have people in their home doing different programming Mm -hmm. with them or tutoring or whatever it is in your region, but that's a pretty common thing. And so as much ongoing communication that everybody can have, we can give our student more opportunities to practice those skills. So, so true. So true. I love all those tips and advice. It's, it, it really does take a village, right? Yes. So after the, some of those basic labeling and imitating, what are some other strategies you would recommend for this population? Yeah. So once a student is able to request, once they're following some one-step directions, once they are labeling, labeling is another thing that's really important. And so we talked about a little bit before, but labeling preferred items, that's always where I start. So we don't want to show something to the students that they like. We don't want to show like the iPad, the actual iPad and have them label it because they might get confused. They might think that they're requesting it and they might get upset. So I take pictures or Google images 
challenges. And what's hard about working with students with more complex needs is that they often do have very specific things that they love and enjoy. I'm sure that we could sit here and say, oh, I had this one kid that really loved, you know, Daniel the Tiger. I have SpongeBob. Yeah, SpongeBob. <laughs> or I have a kid that really loves trains. And I'm like, okay, that's great. So that's where we're going to start. You have to ask yourself, if you've never labeled before, do you want to label pencil when writing is not something you're doing right now? We have to be really comfortable in describing why we're working on what we're working on. And I'll never forget being in a meeting when I was probably in my second year as a speech therapist at a very, um, it was at the Cleveland Clinic. It was called the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism. It was a very, very intense placement. And so I was the speech therapist there. And I remember a SPED director saying, well, why are you working on this? Or, and she wasn't being mean. She was Mm. just kind of asking like, what does that look like? And I just felt like saying like, I mean, I don't know why am I working on that? You know what I mean? But I, I had to pick something. I, mean, I don't know. So over time, you feel more comfortable saying like, we did this assessment. This is my clinical judgment. This is what's functional for this student over the scope and sequence of their communication. And so some of those later developing skills may be labeling, starting with labeling preferred items or actions, and then eventually segueing into things like filling in the blank for common phrases, which I know we do a lot of that as speech therapists, you know, ready, Mm -hmm. set, right? That's kind of an early intervention one. But, you know, another thing to think about is personal safety questions. So a lot of the times, and you know, I spent a lot of time and I know you do it too, in like Facebook groups and Mm -hmm. helping to answer people's questions, but that comprehension piece comes up over and over again. And so some students, you know, are just going to have a hard time answering questions. And you know what? Some students may never be able to answer a when question or a why question. It might just be hard for them and not functional to work on at some point. But I think it's very important for us to think about personal safety questions. So can a student answer, what is your name? Can they answer it when the speech therapist asks, but can they also answer it when the principal asks, Mm -hmm. right? What if they get lost in the school or they leave the area? I Mm -hmm. mean, these are things we have to think about. You know, what's your mom's name? What's your phone number? Those are all things that are so important. So I would say as a speech therapist, if you're listening to this and you have students who are really struggling with comprehension, don't beat yourself up about that and really think about, does the student know those things? That might be the th- something else. Let's take a step back and try that first. Yes, absolutely. So those are things to think about when we're planning therapy for our students. Never even thought of that, like the safety features. I always think like problem and solution and like... Right the problem solving things, right? not so much of like those WH type questions, like those yeah. are so important. So, so true. Yeah. So, so true. So, Our kids really struggle with that. And it's like, well, I mean, it's hard because maybe some kids may never answer a when question, mm-hmm. but if they can answer, what's your name? you know, and you generalize it. Like we have police officers in our schools. That's pretty standard here in Ohio. And so, you know, I try to build a rapport with everybody in the building because (laughs) that's, you're probably the same way. I mean, it's really a good idea to kind of advocate for what a speech therapist does, but you know, we've used our safety officers to generalize different types of skills, like those types of safety (laughs) questions, because we know that that's, that's really important. Mm. You know, safety is a major issue for kids with autism. What if they get lost in the mall or, you know, Mm -hmm. they're at the park and they're lost. 
and somebody says, what's your name? And they don't answer. That can be really scary for families. So, 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 so true. And like pre post COVID times, I used to always <laughs> like take my students like around the building and bring them to different professionals, bring them to the library, bring them this and had them at like had that either had that professional ask the child like, hey, what's your name or different questions or having that child deliver things or do different types of following direction tasks with other professionals other than myself and their teacher. Yes, that's huge. And I, that's a huge part of it. I just wrote an IEP today and I love to use the term in the larger school environment. And basically that means, especially for students who are older, is we have to have the larger school environment be the therapy area. Mm -hmm. We can't just pull students into the therapy room and just pray that it's going to (laughs) generalize to other staff. Like in our bubble of a closet. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because it's just not, I mean, we have to plan for that generalization. So absolutely pre-COVID and that's Mm -hmm. still going in, but it's maybe post-COVID we can do that again, but, and, and it gets us out of, it gets us out of the closet. Yes. And you'll be surprised. Like you would think like you're bothering people at work. Like they love it. Like go to the nurse's office, go to the, like people are so excited to like interact with the students that they never, that they don't, and then a lot of them don't even know how to interact with them. So it teaches them how to do it as well. Yes. And I think it's you kind of by doing that. And I'd love to hear it because we've never talked about that, but it's like, we're advocating for our students. We're saying this person, and I'm sure we are all working in schools that, you know, embrace our students, but you know, that may not always be the case. So I think just showing people, because some people may be uncomfortable, like, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how to talk to that student with autism. I mean, I know before I became a speech therapist, I just wasn't sure, you know, like how to communicate with people with disabilities. Now, when I see somebody in the community with a, a device or some kind of disability, I'm like so excited that they're immersed part of the community, but we need to make sure that we're getting our students out there, that they're generalizing those skills and that they're embedded as in part of the school culture. I think that's super important too. So, so true. And my last question for you, because I know many of my listeners are probably wondering, can you give an example of a goal that you might write for these types of students? Ooh, that's a really great, yes. And actually, I actually have an autism IEP goal bank that's super popular on my website, abaspeech.org, but it's very simplistic. And I've had some people say like, oh, or like there's only, you know, 15 goals on here. I'm like, no, that's really, that's what it should be. It's supposed <laughs> to be simplistic because we don't want to overwhelm ourselves. But, you know, something like, let's say that we have a student who is working on labeling preferred items. So we may say, The student will increase their expressive language skills by labeling preferred items. And, you know, sometimes, Hallie, what I do in parentheses is I may put the number that they're going to label. That may sound scary to people, especially if a student is new to you. But you can kind of, you know, if it's a student you've had before and you're keeping track of how many labels they're acquiring, it gives you a benchmark. Because Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when we're working with students with complex needs, you know, labeling could potentially be a goal that that student works on maybe across their educational history. But maybe when they're younger, they're working on things in their environment. When they get older, they're working on labeling vocational items. Mm -hmm. So that gives us that way to report progress. Mm -hmm. And I always say something like, you know, with 90% accuracy over two consecutive sessions, I Mm -hmm. try to be really specific so that I know exactly how I'm going to target that. I know exactly what that goal is going to look like. And then really what I do, Hallie, is I probably work on one goal or two labeling targets to mastery, whatever the criterion is in the Mm -hmm. goal. 
And then once those are met criterion, then I introduce other ones. And then I keep a running list of those specific labels so that if I need to communicate that to the home team or if I want the teacher to support that, whatever you're doing for generalization, that you know the specific targets you're working on. So you're not just working on different things during each session, that you're really getting systematic about picking those intervention targets. So, so interesting. So true. And such great advice. Because so many of like, we'll see that number 15 going, okay, is it 15 in one session? Oh my God. And then never master. And being so specific on functional to that age and needs of that child. Because I know we get stuck on, you know, I can't roll this goal over to the next year. Right. So, and, you know, my boss is going to say, why is this goal going over and over when you said they've been progressing satisfactorily the entire year or whatever? (laughs) Or like, or, you know, why is this kid never progressing? We want to be so specific that they, it is attainable. Right. And it's relevant to that child. So just because you're labeling one year doesn't mean you can't label the next year. You just might be labeling something different or labeling new labels. Exactly. Or more label, whatever, whatever. So that's yeah, so, you're so. You're keeping a running list of very specific targets. And maybe you start with preferred items and then you segue into more functional items and then you segue into actions and then you do phrases. And I think the biggest thing is to keep that specific data and then you can demonstrate that you're making progress. And it, you know what? I always say, sometimes I work with students who are only going to learn six new labels a year and that's okay because if those six labels are really important and we've analyzed how they're functional or the student is motivated to label them, then that's really important for that student because that's six labels they didn't have before. And we're going to make sure they have embedded practice across their day and they're going to maintain those labels. And that's important for that student. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Any last bit of advice or tips that we didn't share that you want to make sure people hear? Yeah, I would just say if you're working with students with complex needs, don't feel overwhelmed. The very first thing you need to do is just build rapport with the student and spend time with them and don't ask them a lot of questions or, you know, demand things with them. Just be in their space and try to enjoy, you know, their energy and see what they really like and try to embed that in the session. I think sometimes as speech therapists, I mean, you seem like an extrovert. I like to talk a lot. And sometimes I think that some students, you know, we feel like we constantly need to be making this a language and environment. But, you know, sometimes we just want to like kind of be around our students and present things they may like. And we just want to be somebody who can advocate for them. And somebody when they see us, they go, Ooh, I'm excited. That lady gets me or that man gets me like, Mm -hmm. it's time to spend time with them. And I'm excited. So I would say first and foremost, that's the most important thing. Thank you so much for all these tips and ideas and inspiration. Where can people learn more about you and what you have to offer? Yeah, make sure you come and visit me at www.abaspeech.org. We offer a lot of great resources. We're an ASHA-approved CE provider. And also, I'm super excited to announce that I have a podcast launching soon all about autism and communication called the Autism Outreach Podcast. So I hope that you'll give that a listen. And that'll be available on iTunes, I'm assuming. Yes. And all, oh, yes. everywhere podcasts uh-huh. are everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. 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 So definitely go check out Rose ABA speech and on all social media links and all links and everything will be in the show notes. So go check that out. I highly recommend you won't regret it. And I'm going to end this episode with a joke like I always do. Why did the woman run around her bed? She wanted to catch up on her sleep. Ha ha ha! ching. My my jokes are cheesy and corny, but guess what? 
students find them funny. So I will keep sharing them every week with you guys. So thank you, Rose, for joining us on another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. Stay out of trouble, everyone. It is no secret that as SLPs, our focus is always on coming up with new and creative ways to engage our students while teaching them practical and meaningful skills so they can lead more productive, communicative lives. It's also no secret that reaching that goal consistently sometimes feels so out of reach. Being bogged down with paperwork, heavy caseloads, and unrealistic demands put on us by admin has our brains ready to explode, leaving us questioning our confidence, suffering from imposter syndrome, and being unsure of our place in a field that we love. That is why I decided to have a little fun and put together a free quiz that digs into the different SLP personalities we find in our amazing and challenging profession. This free 60-second quiz can help you discover which movie character best represents your SLP confidence, so you can begin to reclaim your time and banish overwhelm for all. No matter which result you get, each character embodies unique qualities that highlight the gifts and abilities you bring to your speech students each day. It also tackles the areas your character may need to work on in order to feel 100% confident as an SLP. Plus, I threw in some access to freebies for you. Who doesn't love freebies? So if you are tired of feeling negative, overwhelmed, devoid of confidence, or just want to have a little fun, take the quiz today. Head to speechtimefun.com slash quiz. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. You can find all of the links and information mentioned in this episode at www.speechtimefun.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any future episodes. While you are there, it would mean the world to me if you would take a few seconds and leave me an honest review. See you next week with another episode full of fun and inspiration from one SLP to another. Have fun, guys.